Let's open the book of Acts chapter 18. We'll be reading the first uh, 17 verses together. The sermon is titled Facing Fear. Acts 18 verses 1 through 17. I'll be reading out of the ESV. So I'll read this and then we will pray and get into it together. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your presence this morning as we just gather around you and sing to you and open your word. I just thank you that you are here, Jesus, that your presence is with us. And I thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that your word is alive and well. These aren't just old stories, but, but what we just read has power. It's God breathed. And so Holy Spirit, would you just speak to us? Speak to your church. Would you encourage us? Would you become greater to us? And would you identify our fears? And would, would we uh, learn to not fear because you are with us this morning? We love you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this last year, uh, I've gotten really, really, like really into fly fishing. Uh, my father-in-law got me a fly rod and reel for Christmas, and I've been going to the Sierras as much as I possibly can to fish. Uh, and a few months ago, my wife and my baby, we were at the Kern River, 
And uh, it was like spring runoff, and the river was just, it was like flowing. Like if you, you couldn't you wade across or swim across, and it was cold, cold water. It's just snow runoff. And you know, sometimes in a river, there's like a big old, like a boulder in the middle of the river. I thought like, I can get there. Like I can for sure get, if I can get there, then I can be in the middle of the river. This will be fine. And so I'm like, I have my rod and all my stuff and waders, and I'm like, honestly, up to almost my armpits. And I, I remember I like, scram- I like lunged onto the rock and I like threw myself on the rock. And as I threw myself, I also threw my rod over the rock into the river. And thankfully, uh, the rock was like, the river was coming this way and there was like a pool right here because the rock was so big. And so the river was just charging both sides. But I just saw my rod just like slowly going down. And I knew, I knew if I jumped in, I could get it. But I like, I didn't know if I had the will to jump my whole body immersed into this freezing icy river. I didn't know if I would live. And I'm just, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I'm watching it go. And I knew I had like five seconds. And I honestly was like half-heartedly like taking off my clothes, but I knew like, no, that's gone. I just lost my fly rod, my Christmas present, my first fly rod. I'm the worst fly fisherman there's ever been. I'm humiliated. I was so, I was honestly so embarrassed. I didn't, I bought the same rod and didn't tell my father-in-law. Like just, I, I was just embarrassed. Um, I bring that up because there are times when fear, when fear stops us from doing the, the very thing we know we need to do. Like it's clear as day, we know the path before us, but we're afraid. Now that's obviously a silly example, but fear is a reality most of us, if not all of us face almost every single day. And I just want to tell you up front, God has encouragement and strength for us this morning as we look to his word. So let's look at verse 1 together, Acts 18, verse 1. We're going to just read through it together, so get your Bibles out and open. Acts 18, verse 1, it reads this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So if you remember last week, Paul was in Athens, he was interacting with them, and now he goes to a major city named Corinth. We have a map for you, it may be a little small, uh, but if you look towards the left side of the map, it's Athens is kind of sticking out from Greece, and he crosses this, this like narrow area into Corinth. So that's where he is, and two things about Corinth. Uh, number one, it was, it was just a major city in general, it was just like a big popular city. It was built, uh, rebuilt by Julius Caesar in like 46 BC. If you, it's hard to tell, but it has like two ports, like the, the land gets really narrow. And so they have a port on their left and a port on their right, which means they, they had a ton of like economic activity going on there. Anything that went through to the rest of Greece went through Corinth. Uh, they had a famous, they're called the Ithmian Games every other year, like Olympics they had there. It was the capital of this whole province. Um, and it was also well known for being highly educated. So it was like a highly educated, wealthy, important city. Uh, not only was it important, it was also infamously immoral. The, the word Corinth became a, a euphemism for just being like sexually depraved. It was like a joke. Like if you were from Corinth, that's just, you're like a Corinthian. Um, we, we know that uh, behind that like little area, the, this mountain would rise up 2,000 feet. And on the top, there was a temple there called the uh, Acrinth or the, uh, what's the other name for it? 
I forget, but it's this mountain with a, with a temple up there. And uh, it was the temple of Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love. And there were over a thousand prostitutes who served the temple and would just go throughout the city every night. And so people were sleeping around. It was just like the culture of Corinth. And we even, we see this bleed into the church. Like when Paul's writing to First and Second Corinthians, he's referring to the fact that they were really proud intellectually and the gospel is foolish. Or he's referring to the fact that they boasted of their sexual immorality. Like that just seeped into the church. And so that's kind of the overall gist of Corinth. Now let's look at verses two to four. Uh, what, what happens here? So while he goes to Corinth, he finds a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor at that time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So here we're introduced to this couple that comes up throughout the Bible, Priscilla and Aquila. They become good friends and companions with Paul. They travel around with him. They lived in Rome and and, the they, at this time, it wasn't that the Jews, all the Jews were kicked out, but as Christianity spread into Rome, uh, the, the Romans just associated Christianity with Judaism. And so they were already like persecuting, pushing the church out of Rome. And so this is how they got to Corinth. And then we see that they're tent makers, which is what Paul's day job was. He worked with his hands during the week. And then on the weekends, on Sabbath, he would go engage various places with the gospel. So this, this is a hardworking man. I mean, he works like most of us all week long. And then he comes into church and he serves the church and he's working and preaching the gospel. So this is what Paul's doing. Now let's look at verse five together. It says this, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, uh, I'm going to read us the NASB. I think it's a little bit clearer about what, what happened. So it says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. And I think that's a better translation because we learn in Philippians 4 that Paul and Silas brought with them a gift from the church in Philippi, a financial gift. And so because they brought that gift, Paul was like, okay, thank you. I don't have to make tents all week long. I can full, like, work full time preaching and devoting myself to the word. So that's kind of the this, this setting here. And let's look at the result of Paul's full-time ministry in verse six. It says this, and when they opposed and reviled him. I just want to pause real quick. Uh, how about that for full-time ministry, right? I finally get to just devote myself to the word. And the moment he does, they oppose him and revile him. I think this is an encouragement to us. If you're tempted to think, man, if I only had more time, if I only had more time to give to God and serve God, then like I could be way more useful. This is like the exact opposite, right? Like he was kind of doing his thing. And then the moment he was full-time ministry, they're like, no, we reject you. I just think it's helpful for us to know you can serve Jesus where you're at with your full-time job and, and on the weekends as needed. God doesn't, he doesn't need us. He simply uses us. And so how does Paul respond? Let's read the rest of verse six. So when they oppose and revile him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, it's easy to just be like, yeah, Paul's being Paul there. You know, he's being dramatic. But, but look at what he says. He, first of all, he, he shakes off his garments, which is a Jewish, like, uh, 
we have other versions of physical expressions of like, I'm done with you. That's what he was doing. It was this Jewish thing when they would often walk through a Gentile town, they would turn around and shake off the dust. Like, I don't even want the dust of your city on me. So he shakes off his garments, which would offend the Jews. Like you're shaking your garments at us, Jews. And then he says, your blood be on your own heads. What Paul's referencing here is uh, what God spoke to Ezekiel. Uh, God made Ezekiel, he was a prophet to the people of Israel. And he was basically just to tell them, hey guys, you're in sin, you need to repent. That was Ezekiel's whole ministry. God's like, listen, they're not, they're not even going to listen to you, but you need to go to them, tell them you're in sin, and if you don't repent, God's going to judge you. And God told Ezekiel, if you don't warn the people, they will be punished for their sin, but their blood will be on your head, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's like, okay. But he says, well, listen, if you do warn them and they don't listen to you, they'll be punished, but you'll deliver yourself. Their blood won't be on your head. You'll be innocent. And Paul is picking up that concept saying, listen, I have told you about the gospel. I've told you that you need to repent of your sin and God loves you and made a way for you. And if you reject me, that's fine. But your blood is not on me. I am innocent. Now, now church, listen, when we refuse to share the gospel where God has given us the opportunity, we will have blood on our heads. When we refuse to share the gospel where God has given us the opportunity, we will have blood on our heads. They'll be punished for their sin if they reject Jesus, but there is some liability, responsibility on us. And honestly, I want to take this pressure off of myself and you, but this is like the real deal. This is New Testament stuff. This is what we are really called to do. You are a sent people. You are not just to come to church and go do your thing and hope someone's telling other people about Jesus. Like there is blood on our heads when we refuse to teach the gospel to those around us. And, you know, it just feels like miserable pressure. Like, I don't want that. Don't put that on me. But I, I forget that the gospel is actually good news, right? We're not just, hey, turn and burn. If you don't repent, you're gonna burn in hell. We have the message, God loves you so much that he came for you. And that though we all fall short, he sent his son to die for you in your place. And if you trust him, you will be forgiven. We have a really good message to share. And, and so this is us. This is our identity as the people of God, as followers of Jesus. And Paul demonstrates that though the news is good, it sometimes is rejected. People will hear it and they will not receive it. And Paul also demonstrates that the day is coming when Jesus is going to return and will judge all things. And there will be blood on heads and there will be judgment for sin. And so it is our desire and our calling that as many people would be covered by the blood of Jesus on that day when judgment comes, like in the Exodus and the Passover, that we would have the blood of the lamb over us. Like we have that news. There's safety under the blood of the lamb. And so that is what we are called to do. And so Paul tells them they reject him. He shakes the, blood, uh, the, the dust off his jacket. He says, your blood on your head. And now he goes to the Gentiles. So let's read verse seven and eight together. 
says this. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. This is cool. We see God like vindicating Paul and his move to the Gentiles. And this is actually the pattern of the New Testament. Jesus goes first to the Jews. Most of them reject him. And then he goes to the Gentiles. That's, that's the pattern through the New Testament all the way to the end. But one of the cool things is as the focus goes to the Gentiles, some Jews in return get saved. Like the first person saved in Corinth was actually the leader of the synagogue, but he didn't get saved until Paul was like, I'm out of here. And then he went next door and then he gets saved. And God just starts saving more and more. It says many of the Corinthian citizens believed and were baptized. And this is the birth of the Corinthian church. This is awesome. This is success. Now, this is where we get to the heart of this text. It's on the heels of this success that we get a, a glimpse into a dark night for Paul. Uh, let's look at verses nine and 10 together. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, okay, we've been following Paul you know, from the beginning of his missionary journeys, we've seen him rejected by whole cities and people groups. We've seen him nearly beaten to death. We've seen him like face to face with demons and driving out darkness. And yet for, this is the first time we like see Paul as a human being facing like real fear. Like this is the first time we see weakness in the man who is the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul, he later talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians in uh, chapter two, verse three. He says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Like this isn't a good fear. This isn't like a, yeah, I'm fearing God fear. Like he is genuinely afraid. And he's, a, he's to the point where he needed supernatural intervention in his life. Like we can infer here that if the Lord didn't show up, Paul maybe would have given it up. Paul maybe would have stopped speaking. Paul maybe would have just gone silent. He maybe would have feared for his life that people would attack him or harm him. Or maybe there's no one else who's gonna believe in God. This is fruitless, I'm done. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's often the case that we think of spiritual leaders such as Paul as human, as like really facing discouragement and fear. And I, I want to state something that should be obvious, but we forget it. The people of God face real fear and discouragement. That's, that's part of what it is when we follow Jesus in this world. We face fear and discouragement. I'm going to read you three different passages from three different men of God who are radically afraid of what God called them to do. You remember Jeremiah? He was a prophet. He had pretty much the same ministry as Ezekiel. Yeah, just go tell people. If you don't repent, it's gonna be bad and no one's gonna listen to you. And he had a rough life. Uh, and so Jeremiah's hearing this call on, on his life. And, and he says in chapter one, verse six, this is how he responds to God. He says, then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. Sounds like Moses, right? I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, 
Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Like this was essential to Jeremiah's whole ministry. And then Ezekiel, when, when he got his call to his tough ministry, this is the interaction in chapter two. It says this, then he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. And then also Elijah. Now, Elijah's just like Paul. He's, he's just on the heels of his most successful like, ministry adventure ever. He just displayed that Yahweh is God and Baal is not. He just slaughtered 400 prophets with his hands. And he's like, yeah, like God is for real. And then he gets threatened by Jezebel, who's not, is the wife of the king, and he just breaks. He snaps and he runs away. And, and look what it says in 1 Kings of Elijah. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Like Elijah was so afraid he would rather die than face his fear. And I want to say this, fear isn't okay. It's sin. But fear is normal. And it's part of our daily struggle in this broken world. And we may all face, we, we do face all kinds of fears. Fear of man, what are people going to think of me? Fear of failure, fear of intimacy, being truly known, uh, fear of the future. We, we face all kinds of fears. But hear me, this is important. The worst kind of fear is the kind that gets us off mission. That's, that's what we are seeing with these prophets and with Paul. The, the, Satan's chief purpose with your fear, think about that. What is Satan doing when he's just allowing us to just be in our fear? It's to get us to cease speaking God's truth to the world. That is Satan's chief purpose strategy in and through whatever fear you're facing, that we would shut our mouths and be afraid of others and would not speak the word of God. And what a clever tactic, right? Like the very thing people need most to hear that God loves them is what our enemy keeps us from doing in our fear. Like the very thing the people we're afraid of need most is the gospel. Yet, but in our fear, we're afraid to address it and speak. And so God shows up to Paul 
and he, he does this to us as well. And he, his encouragement to Paul has four components to it. Number one, the first thing he simply says to Paul is this, Paul, do not be afraid. Like it's, it's actually a command of God to not fear. Like the, the first encouragement God would have to us is like, hey, just obey me and stop fearing. This is the most common commandment in the whole Bible. And like children, we, things seem really big and we don't understand it all. And sometimes we simply just need to hear the no, don't do that, it's not good for you. And, and I want us to think about this. God's word to not be afraid are more than just instructions. Hear this, they're not just instructions to be obeyed. Like God's words have power. I think about this. When God shows up and speaks, like things happen. This is not just a commandment. Like there's power when you hear from God, son, daughter, do not be afraid. There's power as he speaks. When he spoke, the whole universe was created. He sustains all things by the word of his power. And so when we hear this from God, this is not just a self-help, like, okay, I gotta just think about this hard and like keep talking to myself. When God shows up in your life and says, do not be afraid, like power from the spirit of God comes and strengthens us and puts down our fears. Like, don't underestimate the power in hearing this commandment from God. Just don't be afraid. And then the second thing he says to Paul is this, go on speaking and do not be silent. This, this is God countering Satan's designs, right? Satan's like, hey, don't speak, be afraid. It could go really bad. It could be this, it could be this. But God says, no, speak, go on speaking. Do not be silent, do not be silent. And this is profound because the first two uh, instructions or what God does first. The first thing he does is he just addresses Paul's mind. He's like, hey, don't, don't fear. And then he's like, go on speaking. Don't be silent. He's like addressing his body. And notice he hasn't really addressed his emotions yet. He hasn't addressed like the fear, but sometimes this is important. Sometimes obedience precedes our emotions. Sometimes we just need to hear, don't be afraid, go on, and, and, and it will lead to an abatement of emotions. If we wait for our fear to go away before we obey God, we may never move. Sometimes God's like, just listen to me and go on. And look, Paul obeys. Verse 11 says, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is like one of his longest stays on his missionary journey. And, and we had some of the longest letters he wrote were to this church. And then the third thing God tells him, and this is, this is maybe the most important, is I am with you. I am with you. And this is probably the greatest tool that we have to face our fear, to know God is with us. Listen, the greatest way for us to like turn and face our fear is actually to turn our face towards God. The greatest way for us to face our fear is to, to look at God. The Bible refers to this as the fear of the Lord. Like when, when our fears are, are practically bigger than God, like we'll be a slave to them. But when we look at who God is and all of his character and majesty and might, 
all of our fears are put in perspective. Like, no, I have God, I, I am is with me. Like, I am, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is with me. Like, what, what, is, what is death to I am? He's like, hey, I've overcome that. I've handled that. What is pain to I am? He says, I will face the greatest pain on your behalf, and I will make all things new. I am is with me. What is rejection next to I am? Like Jesus faced the ultimate rejection on the cross that you would not be rejected by the one person you need most. You can face other rejections because Jesus is with you and he was rejected by God and God is now with you and for you. What is failure? I'm fearing failure. What is failure next to Jesus? Our failures were nailed through his hands to the cross and he didn't fail and he rose again. And his victory, not your failures, define you. Like when we look at who God is and what he has done and know he is with us, we are, our fears are put in perspective and we are delivered from them. One of my favorite images, it's uh, C.S. Lewis as he writes about Jesus as Aslan. I just love when, when you think about that mighty lion that's like way bigger than a normal lion. When he's walking with you side by side, imagine if you had a pet lion walking around with you, like you probably wouldn't be that afraid right? You're like, I'm okay. This lion here is for me. That is our daily life with Jesus. He is with us, which is why like we have to spend time with him and look at his word every day. And when we forget, all of a sudden our fears begin to grow. Our anxieties, our what if this and our worst case scenarios grow bigger and bigger and bigger. But when we spend time with the Lord and know that he is with us, our fears are put in perspective. And they, the source of our fears may not be removed. Like Paul's circumstances didn't change that night, but he knew the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. And then the last thing he says, number four, he says, I have many in this city who are my people, which may sound like a random encouragement, right? Like I'm really afraid. And he's like, listen, I have many in the city who are my people, but, but I Paul here was, was maybe afraid, like the, the mission would fail. He would fail. The mission would stop. And, and I often feel pressure on my shoulders to save like my unbelieving neighbors. And I, I feel this pressure, this weight, or like, is it going to work? Is the mission, is Jesus going to succeed? What if I fail? And what God is telling Paul here is, listen, I already know who are mine. I already have many in this city. I set them apart before they were born. And he's reminding Paul, like, I am the one who saves people. Salvation is of the Lord. Don't be afraid of it. It's not gonna work or this or that. I, it's, I already have them. They're mine. I am able to save many in the city, which that gave Paul and gives us just confidence like uh, John Stott, a great pastor, said of this, the con this conviction is the greatest of all encouragements to an evangelist. Like God already has them. 
He just sends us to like deliver the message and watch salvation happen, but he's already, he's already got it. Yes, yeah, some are gonna reject. Some may reject the gospel, but others won't because they already belong to the Lord. And I think, church, we need to be reminded, we need to hear afresh God say to you, I have many in this city who are my people. He has, this verse isn't done. This is not like, oh yeah, that was cool back then. Jesus says to us in our cities, I have many in this city who are my people. And this is also an encouragement to our persecuted brothers and sisters. Like Jesus is saying, don't stop. I have many. There are more here. Do not stop speaking. Uh, Back to fly fishing. So on another trip, On another trip, I visited a little fly shop in Lone Pine, and there was this ancient man running this little fly shop, and I walk in, and immediately he starts talking to me about Jesus, and he refers to himself as Tackle Dan, the evangelist, and he's, and then I'm like, no, I know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, he's like, yeah, but still take these tracks, still like, you need to take this all. I'm like, thank you, Tackle Dan, and then he he gave me instructions about different areas to go, and he's like, now remember, he's like, it's not just about catching fish. It's about being a fisher of men. And I was like, oh, Tackle Dan, okay, okay. I got this. I'll do it, Tackle Dan. Um, And I'll be honest, I think it's profound. Jesus uses the fishing metaphor because if you've ever tried to fly fish, here's what goes through my head. This is too hard. This is too discouraging. I'm breaking my lines. They're stuck in everything. I'm looking at an actual trout and I can't get to him. My $2, my $2 flies are just, here's $2 to you, tree. Here's $2 to you, tree. I'm just, and then my number one struggle, this is honest. My number one struggle when I fly fish is this. There are no fish. There aren't any fish here. I show up. I don't move. I look around for hours. No fish. I walk miles down. Don't see a fish. Walk miles up. And supposedly fly fishing is they come to the surface. You can see them. I don't see fish. And I'm thinking, why is this a thing? And then I remember on my last trip, I was so frustrated and I was standing in the river. I had my son on a little backpack thing and I, I like ruined my line and I'm redoing all kinds of things and I'm standing there for five, five minutes just tying, retying, missing tying, just standing there. And then I, I kind of like finish and I look around and you guys, there are trout all around my body. There's like fish there, there's a fish there, there's, and I'm losing my mind because I, I, you don't see fish and there they were. And, and I, I want to say this, is maybe this is, uh, no, this is good. As certain, <laughs> as certain as there are tr- trout in these rivers and they can be caught, there are more in this city and in your life who belong to the Lord. You may be like, I don't see them. There's no hope. There's no way I try. It's just not working. But we have the promise of Jesus. I have more in this city. They're mine. Go on speaking. Don't stop. Some may reject it. You may be discouraged. You may be afraid. But don't stop speaking. Amen. Then... Let's look at verse 11. Paul, in, in, this, this changes possibly his life, the direction of his ministry. Verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Um, so he, he, he remains. And I, the one thing I want us to notice here, besides the fact that he stayed, is what did Paul spend his time doing 
in this city. He taught the word of God among them. Church, as many other important good things we can do in our city, and if you feel called to the nations, as many good and important things as you could do for a nation, the one thing Paul puts his focus on is proclaiming the word of God. Because he knew there was power in the word of God. There was power in God's word, not just in Paul's good arguments, not just in serving the city and being a light. He knew the, my ultimate hope, what I need to spend my time on, is teaching the word of God. And church, we, we are Bible people. This, this is our first priority, to know and then speak the word of God. Because this is where the power comes from, from God's word. This is what the spirit uses to change lives, the word of God. So Paul, he, he preaches for a year and a half, and we're gonna go through the rest of this quickly. We're gonna read verses 12 to 17. This is kind of the end of his stay. This event flares up. Verse 12 says this. But when Gallio was a proconsul of Achaia, which is just random names and things that are important, I'm sure. The Jews, sorry, that was, this is God's word. This is important. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Which, pause, this is interesting because remember one of God's promises to Paul? He says, no one will attack you. But here it is, it's like, well, there you go, God, I'm getting attacked. What is the meaning of this? But let's keep reading. Made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, as he does, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now I want us to notice this. God keeps his promise to Paul. He, Paul didn't even have an opportunity to defend himself. He was like, ah, and then the sovereign hand of God moves a ruler to just simply protect him. Like, I'm not spending any time on this. God was with Paul. He was fighting for Paul, and he delivers Paul. And furthermore, this is incredible. Gallio was a, he was significantly high up in the Roman Empire, and what he did in this moment is set legal Roman precedent in favor of the gospel. And his decision would stand, it, like a decision would in our courts, it would stand and it would set more of a foundation for the gospel to go forth in the entire Roman Empire right here. And what did Paul do? Nothing. He watched God deliver him. You guys, God fights for us and for his word. And he delivers us from what we fear. And listen to this. Whatever it was Paul was afraid of, we don't know what it was. Whatever that worst case scenario was, it never even happened, which is so often our fears, right? We just think worst case scenario, we go down the road and then we emotionally are just spent like, what if this happens? It didn't even happen with Paul. 
And not only that, God is displaying, watch how just kings and rulers are like streams in my hands and I will deliver them and steer them wherever I, I wish. God is still on his throne and he still does this. For the persecuted church right now, God is fully able to do this kind of stuff. He's not, his arm is not any shorter than it once was. And so as we move towards worship, I want us uh, to think of these, these four things really practically. And then also as we go home and as we wake up tomorrow, I want us to think of these four things really practically. So number one, as we approach worship right now, I want to encourage every one of us to face, to deal with whatever fear has been reigning in our heart. Listen, this is not just a amen. Like this is work. This is obedience. What fear am I, what's running through my head most of the day? What gives me anxiety? What do I worry about? And I want to encourage us this morning, every one of us, to bring that to the cross and know that because of Jesus and the cross and his death and resurrection and his promise that he will make all things new and we are forgiven, we don't need to fear. In fact, we must not fear those things. We must be obedient. So let's, let's crucify those fears this morning. Let's take communion. Let's confess them in prayer to one another. Let's deal with our fear. Number two, let's repent of where we've been silent. We need to ask the Lord, and this is hard stuff, I'm sorry, but this is good. Where have I been silent where I know I should speak up for you, Jesus? Where have I been silent? And, and I want us to just repent of that. Jesus, I am sorry for not speaking. And I love Peter here as an example. He was so afraid to speak and identify with Jesus he betrayed Jesus in the most important moment of Jesus' life. And yet he was restored. And grace then empowered Peter's mouth and he spoke a lot after that moment. And so bring that repentance to Jesus and receive grace and his spirit and boldness to go forth to speak. Uh, number three, as God says, I am with you, let's be refreshed in his presence this morning and, and tomorrow morning. Like, be, get up and be with him. Be refreshed in his presence. As, as we're afraid, as our fears and worries are just seem so big, the more we spend in his presence, those fears are just put in perspective. So let's enjoy and just simply, like worship sometimes is simply just looking, beholding God. Just looking at who he is. Gosh, you are so great, God. As we do that act, our fears are just, they disappear because we're fixed our eyes where they need to be. And then the last thing, I just want us to be confident that Jesus is building his church. As he said to Paul, I have many in this city, as David proclaimed uh, prophetically, when God said, be still and know that I am God, then he says, I will be exalted in the nations. He will be exalted. Jesus is building his church. It's a battle, it's a struggle, but Jesus is on his throne. He already has those who are his in this world and he will do it, amen? amen. Jesus, you are worthy and worthy to be praised and you are a good shepherd. And so I ask that you would lead us to yourself right now, that you would help us to be still besides still waters, that you would graciously lead us away from where we, where we should not be. We would lead us away, as a good shepherd does, from our fears, from these even dangerous places we're walking. 
And would you lead us right now just to yourself, to your presence? Would you graciously lead us in repentance back to paths of righteousness? Would you refresh us with your blood and, and the promise, experience of your love? Jesus, would, would we enjoy your presence together? Would you be glorified and magnified as we simply enjoy your presence and sing to you? And would we leave today with greater confidence in who you are? You're bigger than our fears. You will be exalted. There are more in our life that are yours and you've sent us to them. Would we meet with you now, Jesus? Help us where we're distracted, where we're hurting. Please, would right now be just a sacred time where we fix our eyes on Jesus.